0: So we've been in a series for quite some time now. This is week 20. Uh, This is the 20th message in the series where we've been going through the book of Matthew. Now just to give you a little bit of context, Matthew is the book that talks about Jesus as the king above all other kings. And when we think of king, we tend to think of either a bad king, and the bad king is the one who exploits his own people. And then we think of good kings, and good kings are the ones who help their own people by exploiting the world outside that kingdom. And so a good king is one who might, you know, take advantage of the neighboring kingdoms, but they're doing good things for the kingdom inside, you know, the people inside the kingdom. And that's really the kind of king we want if our kingdom begins to grow a little weak or tired or we're under-resourced, we want a king who can do whatever it takes to get the resources from wherever they need to be gotten from and then bring them into us. In other words, the way I've been saying it for the past few weeks is that we all kind of want a king who is going to be um, a kind of a bully for us. We want the bully who's on our side. And Matthew tells us about Jesus, who's a king, and he's none of that. He is never exploiting his own power for his own sake or even for the sake of his own people. What he's constantly doing is he's constantly showing love to the enemy. He's constantly showing grace to the people who don't deserve grace. He's constantly elevating the lowly. And one of the fascinating things about what Jesus does, and we talked about this last week. Last week, we did this this study where Jesus was basically demonstrating and also acting out, living out this principle that God loves the lowly. But the weirdest thing about that principle, that God loves the lowly, is that someone has to be lowly in order for God to show them his love. A good analogy for that is that you can't help anyone up unless they have already fallen. Unless a person has fallen, you can't help them up. And the worst thing of all is when a person has fallen and they deny that they've fallen and so therefore they won't accept any help. That's always kind of our problem. You know, as people, one of the things that we struggle with when we come into relationship with God is the desire for us to receive God's forgiveness, but not so much of a desire to offer God's forgiveness. To other people. We want to be people who receive grace. We want to be people who receive forgiveness, but we don't so much want to be people who offer grace and offer forgiveness. It's a lot easier for us to challenge someone else and to point out someone else's flaws, maybe not directly to their face, maybe behind their back, you know, point out their flaws. It's a lot easier for us to identify and point out other people's flaws than it is for us to identify our own because we like to think of ourselves as forgiven. And so even if I have a flaw, and even if I look in the mirror and I notice the flaw, even if I have the flaw, there's a part of me that's just like, yeah, it's okay, God still loves me. I don't have to worry about that flaw. But this other person, man, they really need to get their act together. What's interesting is that Jesus last week in the passage that we looked at last week told a story that is usually read in the context of God loving the lowly in Matthew. And today we're going to see it in a different context. We're going to see it in the context of God restoring someone. Now, I said it a little bit backwards there because most of the time when people read the story that we read last week, they read it from the book of Luke. And when they read it from the book of Luke, the emphasis is on restoration, not on loving the lowly. But in Matthew, I read it last week because it was more in the context of loving the lowly. Let me start right there with last week's passage in Matthew 18, verse 2. 12. I'll put it up on the screen here. Jesus says, "'What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish.'" If we cut out that last sentence, the in the same way sentence, then that story is basically the same story as the one we find in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, there's a woman who loses a coin, there's a man who loses a son, we call it the prodigal son, and there's a shepherd who loses a sheep. And in the book of Luke, it's all about restoration, it's all about finding the lost things. But in Matthew, he added that one little end sentence where it says, in the same way, my father is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. You see, Jesus is telling that story as a bridge story. It's a story that bridges two concepts. Yes, on the one hand, it talks about God loving the lowly. Even one sheep is important to God but it also is a passage that talks about restoration. That sheep is so important to God that he will go after it however far it has wandered to bring it back. And what that means for us is it means for us that in Jesus' mind, lowliness and restoration are linked. They're principles, they're concepts that are linked. And I shared that illustration of a person falling down and they need to be helped up and they need to be willing to receive that help. Unless a person is actually lowly, they will be unwilling to receive restoration. And, in fact, restoration can only happen when both sides of the equation acknowledge they're lowly. As we'll see in just a little bit. See, this passage today, Jesus is going to focus mostly on restoration, but by the end, you're going to see a really important principle about seeing yourself in humility terms, in lowly terms. Here we go. Let's pick it up in Matthew 18. This famous passage is a passage that is titled in the NIV, Dealing with Sin in the Church. But, um there's a bigger picture of restoration that we need to understand. So let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 15. Jesus says this, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Now, remember, this is immediately after he said, One sheep has wandered away, and God cares for even the lowest sheep, and so the shepherd will go after that sheep and bring it back. So one sheep has wandered away, and now immediately after that, Jesus says, If your brother has sinned, do you see the context? Do you see the relationship? He is talking about a person who, spiritually speaking, has wandered away. I just told you the parable, Jesus says. Now let me give you the practice. This is a passage that has been misunderstood and misapplied in so many ways. Uh, I know, for those of you who've been around our church for a while, you know that there are a few Bible passages where I have pet peeves associated with them, and this is one of them. This is one of those passages where I get some pet peeves associated with it, because here's the deal. My pet peeves always show up when someone has taken a passage in the Bible and has applied it in a way that causes harm to people. It makes me utterly upset whenever that happens, whenever someone takes a passage in the Bible and applies it in a way that causes harm. And this is one of those passages where it has caused so much harm because of Christians misunderstanding and misapplying it. There are two big ways Christians have misunderstood and misapplied this passage. The first one is they think this passage is talking about personality conflicts or disagreements, I have a different opinion from you. And so therefore, this is the passage I'm supposed to follow to handle those conflicts or to handle those, those personality disagreements or to handle those kinds of personal issues. Now, I just want to remind you that Matthew 5 already addressed that. And Jesus only addressed it from one perspective. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you are bringing your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, then drop your gift right there, go and be reconciled to them, and then come back. In Matthew 5, Jesus' point is, if someone else has a problem with you, get it right before you worship God. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. And in Matthew 5, there's no issue of, okay, I've got a problem with them. No, because as you're going to see in just a few minutes, if you have a problem with someone else, Jesus' response to you would be, get over it. Literally, that's his response. In this passage right here, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, it is not about personality conflicts. It says it right at the beginning, it's about sin. It's in the context of a believer who has wandered off. That's not between you and them. It's between them and God. Okay. The second thing that people have done to misunderstand and misapply this verse is they have blamed other Christians for misapplying this verse. Now, let me explain this a little bit. I've been in many contexts where person A had a problem with person B. Person B is confused about the situation, and so person B talks to person C. Because person B needs some perspective on the situation, and so they talk to person C. Then person A gets mad at person B and C because neither of them talked to them. Does this make sense? Are you, are you tracking with this? This is the thing where someone will say to you, how dare you talk behind my back? If you had a problem with me, you should have come and talked to me directly about it. You've heard someone say this before, right? I want to free you from the understanding that that is a biblical principle. Because it is not in Matthew 18 for you, when you have a problem with someone else, to talk to that person first. It is highly appropriate. In fact, this passage would include this. It is highly appropriate for you to involve some other people so you get some wisdom and you're not just judging other people. It's highly appropriate for you to talk to someone smarter and wiser than you so that you can get some perspective on the situation. So anyway, the ways we have misapplied it is one, we have applied it to uh, personal conflicts. And two, we have applied it so that now I have a reason to blame you when we have a personal conflict and you do something wrong. I can now give you extra blame for not dealing with the personal conflict properly. Does, does that make sense? These are wrong ways to handle the passage. Let me give you some understanding of how to handle the passage. And it comes from Jesus' own words here. I'm going to give you kind of a recipe. And remember this recipe is not about restoring your relationship to them. This recipe is about restoring their relationship to God. Does that make sense? Because they're the wandering sheep. They're the one who has sinned. Here's the first thing. This applies, this passage applies, if a fellow believer... Sins. Those are two very important words. This passage doesn't apply for your neighbor if you guys are not in a church together. This passage doesn't apply to your neighbor if you have no relationship with your neighbor. This passage doesn't apply to your coworker if your coworker is not a Christian. This passage applies when a believer sins. And then, of course, that for some reason you know about it. Now, if you don't know about it, then of course you can't apply this passage because you're, you, you don't have any authority to enter into their life and, and mention anything about it because you don't know it. But if you know it, and it's a believer who has committed a sin. Now, I, I need to reiterate here that if you are asking yourself a question, did they sin? If you are asking that question, then your responsibility is to answer it first before you confront your responsibility is to identify whether or not scripture actually says their behavior was a sin there're going to be a lot of times when someone makes you mad there can be a lot of times when someone says the wrong thing. They post something on Facebook. They have an opinion that you don't agree with. There's something about this other person that just rubs you the wrong way. And you're waking up in the middle of the night, stressing over this person and this relationship, and you have to actually ask the question, are they sinning? Yeah, because they entered my life. you know, And they're, they're bringing their negativity into my life. Well, where in the Bible does it say anything about a believer who is somehow rubbing you the wrong way over some opinion that they have. No, that doesn't exist, okay? You have to actually ask the question, have they sinned? Are they displaying any of the character qualities in the Bible that are clearly outlined as sin? Have they performed any of the behaviors in the Bible that are clearly outlined as sin? Are they doing anything in the relationships that they have that are clearly outlined as sin? If the answer is no, then you're not in a sinful situation. You're in a personality dispute kind of situation, and other passages apply. But first, is this a believer, and have they committed a sin? That's the first question. The next thing. The next step is for you to approach them. But remember what Jesus said. Approach them, just the two of you. That means you're going to go to this person in a place and an environment where it's comfortable and safe for them. You're going to go. The reason Jesus says to do it privately is specifically so that other person has the best possible chance of perceiving it as a relationship. The best possible chance of perceiving it as a relationship. So you go in a situation where it's comfortable to them. And then I would encourage you to say this sentence. When you blank lay out what they did, that was a sin because blank, give a passage reference in the Bible, says blank, quote what the Bible says, or show it to them in Scripture. And then shut your mouth. When Jesus says, point out their fault, he doesn't mean go to them with an essay. He doesn't mean write them a 12-page email. He, He doesn't mean give them all the information that they need. They only need one bit of information, and that is connecting what they did to a passage in the Bible, connecting what they did to the Word of God. And they can disagree with you about what they did. And if they disagree with you about what they did and they're right, they didn't actually do the thing you think they do, they did, then rejoice. They're innocent. It was all just a misunderstanding. Praise God. But if they disagree with God's word, they're not disagreeing with you at all. They're disagreeing with God. And that is your job. Your job is not to create a new personality conflict. Your job is to draw out the existing problem between them and God. All you're doing is pointing it out. And now they have a choice to make. They have a choice whether or not they're going to receive it. But before that, Jesus gives another stage of the process, another piece of advice. And that is that you should try up to three times. Once by yourself, just me. Once with witnesses. And if needed, then before the church. i want to give a quick little explanation for what that's all about. The the me privately with the other person, that's self-explanatory by now. Um, But the witnesses one is interesting. And so Jesus doesn't tell us what witnesses are in this passage. So I'm going to give you my best guess. My best guess for a witness in the context of this passage is a person who knows the things they need to know. That's a witness. They know the things they need to know. And the things they need to know, one, they know the person. They need to have a relationship with that person. So the witness is someone who knows the person. The witness is someone who knows what the person did. They are a witness to the actual behavior. And the witness is a person who knows God's word well enough to agree with what you're saying here. Now, let me just be really clear with you about this. The only way for you to get a witness in this context is to talk about what that person did with someone who isn't that person. Now, there's a a fine line. Listen, um, there's a, a major problem in Christianity with gossip. Because, see, we all love to tell the bad stories about the other people. And gossip is when you are telling the bad story about the other person because you want this other person to commiserate with you and agree with you that that other person is so bad. And gossip is terrible. But anytime you are talking about a person's relationship with God because you want to help restore their relationship with God with someone else who wants to help restore their relationship with God, then that's not gossip. That is strategy for Matthew 18. Because you have to find someone who knows that person, who knows what they did, and who knows the scripture. And quite frankly, let's just be honest, if you spoke to that witness early enough in the process, that witness might have slapped you and said, no, you're the person who's misunderstanding scripture. What they did is not a sin. You need to just get over that whole thing between you and that other person. And so talking to a third party, talking to a potential witness is not a bad thing. And we shouldn't be upset with other Christians when they take that approach because they love us and they care for us. It's okay. So a witness is someone who knows them, knows what they did, and knows the Bible, knows the scripture, relevant scripture. And then the third category is the church. Now there are some churches who do this by putting a person on stage in front of the entire congregation and then they'll point at that person and say this is what that person did. And all of you need to vote vote to kick them out of the church unless they right now repent. That's one way some churches do this thing. And I'm not going to judge other churches for choosing to do that. There are good and bad reasons and ways to do all that kind of stuff. The way I view it and the way we do it in our church context is we've written it into the bylaws that the church can be represented by the elders of the church. And so the leaders of the church are the ones that you would approach and you would ask them to be that third phase, the leaders of the church. We're not going to parade someone in front of the entire congregation unless for some reason their sin was against the entire congregation and they want to repent to the entire congregation. That's when we would do something like that. But we're not going to just point at someone and say, hey, listen, we're kicking this person out and so we want you all to see them before we... We're not going to do anything like that. But the church can be the leaders of the church. All right. So, what do we want? This is important. What do we want from the other person? Ultimately, we want their restoration, right? The word Jesus uses in Matthew 18 is the word listen. If they listen to you, you have won your brother over, it says. And so, again, Jesus doesn't describe for us what listen means. So I'm going to give you three words that I think help you understand what listen probably means in the context Jesus is speaking. Listen would be to receive, to confess, and to repent. Receive means they have listened to the words that you have spoken without debating them. They have received the word of God without arguing with the word of God. They have received this moment without just jumping on to some sort of argument situation they've received. But confession is different. Confession, a lot of times people think that confession is when I make a list of my sins. Bible confession just simply means to agree with what's true. You have sinned. Confession is to agree that it was a sin. Jesus says, that, if, or in, in the book of John, it's written, if you confess with your sins... If you confess your sins, then you will be forgiven. Confession is not about listing. It's about admitting. Admitting that the thing that I did was a sin. So they have received it. They have confessed. They've agreed with you that it was a sin. And third, repent. That means they've turned away from it. They've decided, okay, I'm not going to do that behavior anymore. I'm going to turn away from that behavior. You say the sentence, give them the opportunity to respond. And if they receive and confess and repent, done. Restoration. Full no reason to have any other thing going on you don't need to bring it before a group of people you don't need to bring witnesses if they receive it just you that's amazing you've won your brother over jesus says but here's one more thing you need to remember in this process if they don't do it with you but they do it with witnesses that's still cause for rejoicing that's not well why wouldn't you do it when it was just me how come you don't trust me well enough to just receive what I have to... You had to wait until I brought witnesses and you, you had this bitterness against them for so long because they wouldn't listen to you, but they would listen to this other person. No, that's not the goal. The goal isn't for you to feel better about yourself. The goal is for them to be restored. The goal is for them to be brought back into relationship with God and with his family. And if they wait all the way through the process until it's at the church level, then yes, that's a place for rejoicing. And it's like, yes. That's amazing. It doesn't matter when they do their listening. If they do, I'm going to rejoice. And if they don't, I'm going to release. Jesus says this interesting phrase at the end. He says, if they don't listen even to the church, treat them as you would a tax collector or a pagan. A pagan is a person who denies God's supremacy a tax collector is a person who denies the importance of the family because the tax collector has kind of betrayed their own nation and people in favor of another nation or people and so the tax collector is a person who denies the importance of the family that they have and a pagan is a person who denies the authority of God and so Jesus says if they don't listen even to the church then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector but here's the important question for Christians how would Jesus treat a pagan or a tax collector have you ever seen Jesus interact with a tax collector I think there was a guy named Matthew who is writing it, right? Matthew is the one who's writing this down. Matthew is literally a tax collector. That's what he was before Jesus called him. And so he says, Jesus' words, he's writing it down. He says, Jesus said to treat them like a tax collector. And how was Matthew treated? He was invited to come into the family. This is the thing. God doesn't tell you you're supposed to shun the person. God doesn't tell you you're supposed to turn your back on the person. You're supposed to ridicule them. You're supposed to excommunicate them. He says what you do is you release them, which means you let them be them. You stop telling them they're wrong. You just let them do whatever it is they're going to do because the truth of the matter is they are not a Christian. The truth of the matter is they're not a member of the church. The truth of the matter is they have self-selected themselves out because they wouldn't respond to you properly or respond to the church properly and so they are literally now outsiders but what do we do with outsiders we welcome them in we invite them in and so you're always hoping for restoration because jesus wants us to be agents of restoration jesus wants us to be agents of restoration no matter who the person is how far they've wandered or whether or not they've hurt you in the process Now, that's the context that we need to keep in mind as we look at some very, very difficult passages to follow. All right? So we just talked about Jesus wanting us to be people of restoration. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. These are two little passages that are widely misunderstood. And it's pretty easy to see why they're misunderstood because the first half is like what in the world context shift binding and loosing heaven and earth don't make sense. And then the second one is this blanket ask for anything you want and it's going to be done for you. That's the Ferrari verse right? Um, Or maybe, you know, today it would be a Porsche Taycan for me, one of those, you know, electric-powered Porsches that's... Anyway, so that's that's the passage where we just ask for whatever we want. Here's the problem. Both of these verses mean something ludicrous if you take them out of context. But if you keep them in their context, they mean something so beautiful, so unbelievable, And still ludicrous, but in a different way. Let's start with the binding and loosing thing. Some churches have taken these two verses out of context and they'll say, okay, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that there are things in heaven and things on earth that need to be bound up. And there are other things in heaven and on earth that need to be loosened. What are the things that might be in the heavenly spaces or in the earthly spaces that need to be bound up? Somewhere along the line, someone decided that that was a reference to demons. That demons were the things that needed to be bound up. And angels were the things that needed to be loosed. Or that spiritual evil forces, maybe not demons directly, but somehow spiritually evil forces need to be bound up. And somehow, you know, spiritually good forces need to be somehow loosed. And so there is a very, very, very strong uh, theory among the wider body of Christians in the world that says Christians have the authority to declare evil spirits bound or evil powers bound, and they have the authority to release or loose the good forces or the good spirits or the angels in the lives of other people. And you might even hear people pray this way, if you're ever in a context in some other churches where they might say, and we bind the force of the flu in this person's life, or we bind the coronavirus and declare it to be null and void, or something along those lines. And literally... You only get that if you take this verse out of context, because you might be interested to know that the words binding and loosing could be translated differently. One way to translate the word bind is to translate the word hold or hold on to. Another way of translating the word loose would be to translate it as the word release. So if we read it that way, Jesus is saying something along the lines of, truly I tell you, whatever you hold on to on earth will be held on to in heaven. And whatever you release on earth will be released in heaven. Or maybe there's another thing you might be interested to know. The grammatical structure in the original Greek language there is actually a past, it's a past perfect Um, excuse me, a future perfect. It literally says, I tell you, whatever you hold on to on earth will have been held on to in heaven. And whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. There's a weird grammar structure going on there. And I might have just given you a whole bunch of new layers of, I don't understand this, so let me just break this down. Jesus is saying, if you forgive something down here, God's got it forgiven up there. But if you get bitter and hold on to something down here, then God's got something he's holding on to up there. See, this is a passage about restoration and forgiveness with one extra super powerful twist. Now you look at the next verse where he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for you because I am there in your midst. This is absolutely mind-bending crazy. But what Jesus himself is saying is because I, Jesus Christ, am in your midst, then you Christians, if you declare together as a community that something has been forgiven in heaven, it's forgiven. And because I am with you in your midst, if you Christians here on earth declare that something is not forgiven, it's not going to be forgiven in heaven either. Jesus is giving his church the authority to not exactly forgive sins, but the authority to declare when they have been forgiven. This is an amazing thing, and of course it falls perfectly in line with something Jesus said to Peter earlier. Do you remember when, Peter, when Jesus said to Peter, you're the rock, and I tell you on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it, and I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that Christians, his people, the church, we are the ones who have the handle of the door of heaven in our hands. And we are the ones who can open the door or shut the door. And if someone is in our fellowship and we have done the diligence of studying the scriptures and we've talked to them about their sin and they reject our appeals to them and they reject God's word, then we can confidently, because we're in agreement with each other and because Jesus is in our midst, we can confidently say, well then my friend, your sin has not yet been forgiven. And Jesus will say, and it won't be. But if the community of believers say, no, 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 that's forgiven. Jesus says, you better believe it is. In other words, the power of restoration is literally in the church. It's not just that Jesus says, I've got a message for you and I want you to go and tell the world about this message and then leave it up to them. Jesus is literally saying the power of restoration, the power of grace, the power of forgiveness is literally in the church. And you can ask for forgiveness for anything and it will be done for you. Jesus isn't saying ask for a Porsche. He's saying ask for someone to be forgiven and I'll get it done. And so Peter... Of course, because he knows that Jesus is talking about forgiveness and not some magical voodoo vending machine God here. Peter knows Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And so Peter asks Jesus a question about forgiveness. Look at this, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And of course, Peter thinks he's being real noble there. I'm going to forgive my brother or sister seven times. I mean, man alive, how often should I. Should I forgive this person? I'm going I'm to go above and beyond. How about seven, Jesus? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or depending on how the Greek translation should work, we don't know. It could be translated 70 times seven, because it all depends on where you put the word times, you know? Is it 77 times or 70 times seven? It, you might not know the answer, but it's 490, and actually it doesn't even matter because the truth of the matter is, Jesus was exaggerating. He wasn't saying, I need you to keep a record. It's either 77 or it's 490. And depending on how you read the Bible, you might get it wrong. What if you only forgive someone 77 times and Jesus wanted you to forgive them 490 times? Then then you've just messed up. Oh my goodness! that's not the way the Bible works. Jesus isn't trying to catch you in a loophole. Jesus doesn't give you a recipe for you, then the witnesses, then the church, because if you somehow skip one of the steps, he's gonna zap you from heaven. That's not what this is all about. The point isn't to follow the steps. The point isn't to follow the recipe. The point isn't to count how many times you've forgiven. The point is to restore. The point is to restore. But there's some interesting things that are going on here that are different from what we've seen before see, Peter asks a very specific question. He says, how many times shall I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? See, earlier we were talking about a sin that broke their relationship with God and maybe broke their relationship with the church. But Peter's just now asking a personal question. He's like, what about the guy who sins against me? How many times do I have to forgive that And Jesus says one of the most painful phrases that's in the Bible. If the sin is against me, I should just forgive him every time. If the sin is just against me, then I should just forgive every time. Oh, but you know what? This is one of those situations where Jesus is implying that that person has come to you and asked for forgiveness. Jesus is implying that that person is repenting from their sin and that their sin is something you you confronted them on or something. No, this is a different thing entirely. This is a person who has done something that you perceive as a sin against you. It doesn't involve the church. It doesn't involve other people. It doesn't involve their relationships with the outside world. It doesn't involve their Christian witness. It doesn't involve their relationship with God. It's just a sin against you. And if they've sinned against you, get over it. Forgive them every time. That's what Jesus says. Because see, Jesus is so uptight about your restoration and their restoration that he doesn't want anything to get in the way of someone's restoration. And Jesus, for crying out loud, he's the one who will sacrifice his life so that you could be forgiven for your sins. And now you are wondering how many times I should forgive this other person for looking at me funny. How many times I should forgive this other person for failing to turn in their homework on time and that made me late. How many times should I forgive this person for stealing that little thing from me that is really of inconsequence but it just is annoying because they did it again. How many times... Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, That's, you don't mean I'm supposed to trust them. You know, this is a person who's wounded me time and time again. Am I supposed to trust them? No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't say trust. Trust is a totally different thing. Trust is what you do when someone is trustworthy. Trust is something you give when someone is trustworthy. Trust is an evaluation of character qualities in all kinds of past history. And so you evaluate, is this person trustworthy? If they are, then I trust them. If they're not trustworthy, I'm not going to trust them. That's a, that's a totally, that's a, that's a totally separate thing. Forgiveness is about a debt. This person has wronged me and I want them to pay it back. This person has wronged me, I want them to feel the pain. This person has hurt me and I want to be able to get at them or something like that. Forgiveness is about a debt. When someone sins against you, they have committed something. They have taken something from you that can't ever be given back. They owe something to you. It's a debt. And Jesus knows it's like a debt more than anything else because he tells us a money story next. To put icing on this cake, Jesus gives us a money story. Take a look at this. It says, verse uh, 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Wow. Now, Jesus is using debt to illustrate forgiveness in a way that I find to be incredibly powerful. Now, the original text here says that he owed 10,000, and then the translation says bags of gold. The original text is talents. 10,000 talents. Now, in Jesus' day, a talent was a unit of measure, and it was also a unit, uh, it was a unit of weight, but it was also a unit of money. And in Jesus' day, a talent of gold would have weighed so much that it was worth 6,000 denarii. Now, a denarii was one day's wage, and so a denarii worth one day's wage, if we do the math, we can estimate that people in our culture today, the average household income is $50,000, and the average person is probably working five days a week, and the average person is probably working 50 weeks out of the year, let's say. And so that boils down to about $200 per working day. At $200 per working day times 6000 we get $1.2 million. And so this man's debt of 10,000 talents was $12 billion. Now, Jesus knows what he's doing here. Remember, the second guy owed 100 denarii, 100 silver coins. He owed 100 days wages. That was it. So, I mean, that's a lot of money. That's $20,000. A hundred days wages is $20,000. That feels like a lot of money, right? That's what this other guy owes him. But the first guy's debt was $12 billion. $12 billion. The reason Jesus uses these numbers is that he wants you to get a grasp of the ludicrous amount of debt that you owe God. A near infinite amount of debt that you owe God, that I owe God, and the minuscule amount of debt that anyone owes us. Now, it feels like a lot. Don't get me wrong, $20,000 feels like a lot. But if you had taken a loan for $12 billion, what is $20,000? In fact, think through it with me for just a moment. Let's imagine that you had taken out a loan for $12 billion. Can you imagine all of the things you would have had to do in your life to lose it? To lose $12 billion. I don't even know how long it would take me to spend a million dollars, but $12 billion, I, I... I don't even think I could. I think the interest I would be earning on that from normal bank accounts would be so much more than I could even possibly spend. I have no idea. Unless I bought like sports teams. I don't know. But anyway, $12 billion is such a huge amount of money. And if you wasted all that money and now you're going to your creditor and your creditor says, okay, listen, I need you to pay the debt back. And you're like, no, no, just give me some time. I'll pay it back. Seriously? Like, like, seriously? Seriously? You think you can pay that back? How long will it take you to pay that back? $12 billion? How long? But the question I have is why this guy who is forgiven a $12 billion debt would bother to try to get $20,000 off this other guy. Like, how does that happen? What's going on in his mind? Jesus doesn't tell us, but I have a theory. My theory is that this man couldn't forgive the other guy because this man hadn't allowed himself to feel forgiven yet. Let me show you. There's a little verse here that we read. It says this, At this the servant fell down. We'll put it up on the screen. At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. It is a ludicrous and stupid claim for this man who owes $12 billion to think that he has the ability to pay it back. But he says it anyway. Why? Why does a man who owes $12 billion say, I can pay it back when he's got nothing? He's clearly out of everything. He's a servant, okay? How can he possibly say it? Well, there's only one explanation. He's trying to do what you and I would do. Save face. See, at this point in time, you know you're a loser. this point in time, I would know I'm a loser. He knows he's a loser. But he could possibly be a little bit less of a loser if he's given more time. He could possibly be a little bit less of a loser if he tells the guy, oh, I really could pay it back, and then the guy forgives him because the last word that I said was, yeah, I'm good for it. I still really can't pay for it. So he feels less like a loser because he's said those things. But look at what he does next. Again, let's put it up here on the screen. It says, but... The next slide. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now, after his debt has been forgiven, why is he out there trying to collect $20,000 from the other guy? Well, there's only one reason. He's still trying to pay back the debt. He's still trying to pay back his debt. And he's like, okay, so maybe I've been forgiven. But if I could, if I could rustle up $20,000, if I could rustle up a little bit, then that symbolic action of responsibility will prove to my master that I'm good for it. It will prove to my master that I'm not as much of a loser as he thinks he is. See, in order for me to be forgiven, I have to admit that I'm a loser. In order for me to be restored, I have to admit that I'm fallen. In order for me to, to accept anyone else's help, I have to admit that I am am lowly. But I don't want to be lowly. I don't want to be, I don't want to feel like I'm lowly. I want to save face. I want to look less bad. And so, yeah, I'm going to take whatever I can get from this person, even if it's insanely insignificant to this person, because at least I will feel better about myself. See, this is my theory. I think the reason we don't forgive people is that we haven't received forgiveness. I think I can't forgive someone else until I have actually received forgiveness first. I think I can't forgive someone I perceive to be a loser until I finally and fully admit that I am, in fact, a loser. I am lowly. One of my favorite weeks of being a pastor happened when I was in Chicago. I got a phone call from a guy who said, I think I need a church. And I was like, you probably do. <laughs> Come on by. He's like, can we get together and talk? And I said, sure. So there was this restaurant nearby. I think it was a Taco Bell or something. So we go over to this restaurant. We're sitting down in the restaurant. And he begins to tell me a little of his story. And he tells me that in the book of Luke, he was reading. And the reason he was reading the book of Luke was because he was trying to help someone else uh, run a Sunday school program, and that other person needed some help, and he never went to church, and so he wasn't sure what Sunday school was all about or what the Bible was all about, but this person was doing a Sunday school class in the book of Luke, and so he's like, okay, I'll read the book of Luke. Previously, this man had had a really bad relationship, a really bad breakup with a girlfriend, and he was feeling really bitter towards her and all that stuff, and so he's trying to build this relationship with this other girl who's doing a Sunday school thing, and so it's kind of, you know, it's kind of his rebound, but it also involves some spirituality, and so he's reading the book of Luke, and he's he says, I'm reading it. And I come across this passage that says, this is how my father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. If you forgive them when they sin against you, then my father in heaven will forgive you your sin. And he's overwhelmed in that moment with the bitterness he feels towards his ex-girlfriend. And he realizes in that moment that the forgiveness he wants to give to his ex-girlfriend is a forgiveness that he can never give unless he experiences it from God. No church background of any sort, but sitting there with the book of Luke open, he drops to his knees like one of these guys in the story and holds out his hand, and says, so I just told God, God, if if you want me to forgive that girl, you got to forgive me. And he spends a few moments in prayer asking for God's forgiveness so that he can forgive this other person. And I'm leaning back in my chair and I'm like, holy cow. You're telling me that a person can come to faith in Jesus just by reading the Bible? They don't need some Highly skilled church person to sort of explain it all to them. They can just read the passage about God forgiving people and they can want it. And in that moment, I was like, this is the most powerful message in the world. This is the most, I mean, it begins badly. It begins with me admitting I'm a loser, but it ends up with some incredible stuff. It ends up with me recognizing that I'm a loved loser. And I'm so much of a loved loser that God would sacrifice all of His power and authority to bring that power and authority into my life and into my sphere so that I could be part of the group of people who own forgiveness and offer it to others. Such an amazing thing. I am a loser who's loved so much that it puts me in the presence of God. Some words that Jesus said, said a few verses i'm going to put up here on the screen here it says this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart and that's a challenging word that's a scary word that's a frightening word that makes us feel like i need to forgive or else but the two things are linked i need to experience forgiveness so that i can forgive and take a look at this next one It says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We saw that in Matthew 6. And it all goes back to Matthew 5, this amazing passage, one of the key verses in the entire book of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the deal. You and I are losers, and that's perfectly fine with me. We are losers who are loved. We are the flawed who are forgiven. And we've been loved so much that God has lifted us and forgiven us and given us a mission. This is the message. This is the message we enter the world with. This is the message. The message that the losers are loved, that the flawed are forgiven, and that we have this mission to spread to other people. Our church is in a rebuilding phase right now. We're live and in person, sort of. We've got a lot of people who are doing the thing uh, virtually, and we haven't done any advertising. We haven't advertised on Facebook or Google that you know we're, we're back open and all that stuff because I wanted us to settle into some of these core principles from the book of Matthew for a while and then when we get to October we're going to do kind of a grand reopening launch sort of thing where we're going to start letting people know about us again and we're going to start really trying to promote what's going on here on Sunday morning and also during the week core groups and stuff like that we're going to make our way through Matthew and I want it to settle down deep in your hearts but that doesn't mean that you and I have to wait until October to start spreading this message. We're losers who are loved. We're the flawed who are forgiven. And anyone around us can receive the same thing. So you're walking around your co-workers environment uh, this week and you say to yourself, man that person's such a loser. You've got it. If they are, they need the message that they are loved. Or maybe you're thinking, man, that other person, that guy's just, he's so flawed. Yes, you found a target. Because if they're flawed, they need to know they're forgiven. And they can be forgiven. And so no matter what's going on, this week, these next couple of months leading all the way up, we're a church, we're a people, we're a family with a mission that is unbelievably great. We might be losers, but that's okay. We're loved. We might be flawed, but that's okay. We're forgiven. This is our message, and it is our mission. And it's not just for you and for me. It's for all the other losers and flawed people in this world. And I tell you what, I'm imagining that the more people get to hear how much they are loved and forgiven, And the more they get to see us be the agents of that love and forgiveness the more people will be drawn to jesus and the more his kingdom will shine forth in this world let me pray for you thanks for listening to this message from lafayette community church we are all about helping you live the life you were made to live god made you god loves you and his plans for you are perfect So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.